Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Yes, good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio for Friday, October 9th, 2009. This week, episode 141 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes, a Radio Joe, and back with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Hey, it's good to be back, Joe. Good, good to, to be back. Good to have you back. Our, the team is back. All right. We've also got Environmental Annie Kowalecki here. Hey, Joe. Good day, Annie. And, of course, at the controls, as always, is the wingman, Chris Boisel. Right. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Today's segments include the micro band trivia question. We've got Wayne A. Baker, P-E-C-I-H. Looks like we've got him on the line. We'll be unmuting you in just a moment, Wayne. Then we'll have the halftime with Dr. Dieter. We'll bring him in for a couple comments, and then we're going right back to our second half with Wayne. We've got a lot to talk about today. Uh, we'll finish up with the roundup, bring everybody back in, talk things over a little bit. We've been updating that website every week at iaqradio.com. Check it out when you get a chance. But before we do, let's thank our sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. And Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services or products. Okay, I think most of you know how to contact the show now. Just dial that 724-444-7444. Our ID is 1547, or of course you can just stream us live by going to iaqradio.com and follow the link that says go to the show. You can also download shows later from iTunes or from our iaqradio.com website. Just again, go to go to the show. Don't forget, we also have ABIH, IICRC, and ACAC, formerly the IAQ Council, renewal credits or certification certification maintenance points available by calling me or emailing and requesting a quiz at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com or of course you can email cliff as well our our emails are up on the website there so let's move on from that and uh, don't forget last but not least of course we've got the training you trust at iaqtraining.com before we get started though let's do that microband trivia question thanks joe
win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Simply email it to cliffz at prorestoreproducts.com. Now for the microband trivia question for Friday, October 9, 2009. Occupational hygiene is generally defined as the art and science dedicated to the anticipation, recognition, evaluation, communication, and control of environmental stressors in or arising from the workplace that may result in injury, illness, impairment, or affect the well-being of workers. Today's question is, we want you to name the five categories in which the stressors are classified. Back to you, Joe. Okay, Cliff. What do you think? Let's do an IAQ radio hat. This year we got the new hats. All right. Uh, all right. Sounds hey, good. First one with the answer. You get that IAQ radio hat. We got the new ball caps in. Looking good. All right. Today's guest is Wayne A. Baker, PE and certified industrial hygienist. Wayne is the indoor air quality division manager of Michaels Engineering, a diversified environmental and engineering consulting firm with offices in La Crosse, Milwaukee, or La Crosse. Milwaukee and Green Bay, Wisconsin, and also St. Paul, Minnesota. Wayne is a professional engineer. He's also a certified industrial hygienist. Got his bachelor's degree at the uh, University of Minnesota. He's an Indoor Air Quality Association first vice president. He is also the uh, elected to the American Industrial Hygiene Association IEQ committee. Secretary elect, and uh, he's been appointed a liaison between the American Society of Heating, Refrigerating, and Air Conditioning Engineers and the American Industrial Hygiene Association. He was also appointed as a liaison between ASHRAE uh, and AIHA, and I believe he's also doing that with IAQA. But uh, before we go any further, we've got some special music for Mr. Wayne Baker. Hey, Wayne, do we have you on the line? Good morning, Joe. How you been? Good, thanks. How about yourself? I'm hanging in there. Great to have you back. I, we, need, to uh, go ahead. I need to explain the, my selection of that song. Okay, okay. please do. Well, it, it, it reflects the fact that I'm never satisfied with, with the work that I do, that uh, there's always room for improvement. And it also goes back to a point in time where I was a little kid and hung out with the big kid that lived across the street from me, a guy named Glenn Anderson. I can picture it to this day. Glenn Anderson had just gotten a 45 of this song. I don't know why this sticks in my mind, but I remember going over to Glenn's house, and I wanted to go out and play baseball in the street or something like that. And he insisted on listening to that song two more times or something like that before we could go out and have fun. <laughs> I thought maybe it was that you had no satisfaction, that, you know, that you're always looking for more information, and, and maybe maybe you got more satisfaction with some of the stuff that's come out here recently on uh, why people get sick in damp buildings, Wayne. Well, yeah, we've got a long ways to go there yet, don't we, Joe? We do, we do, but I think we've, you know, I was looking at your paper here, and, and I, I would love to put a copy up for our listeners at the end of the show um, if we can do so. 
on why do people get sick in damp buildings and some of the references that you've provided with us. And it appears to me from, you know, being in the business for a while and talking to you that there's a whole lot of interesting stuff that's come out since about 2001 forward. Can we start back with uh, what I think you consider to be one of the most important uh, studies, and that would be the Dampness in Buildings and Health, the Nordic Interdisciplinary Review of Scientific Evidence on Associations Between Exposure to Dampness in Buildings and Health Effects. I got it. Nordamp, I believe, is the way they kind of uh, uh, abbreviate that one, Wayne. Can you tell us a little bit about that one and why you think it was so important? Yeah, well, you know, having got into, gotten into this business uh, uh, early 1991, there wasn't, uh, there was a lot in the scientific literature that, that we studied um, in, in the performance of our jobs and, and learning how to, how to be an indoor quality person, an IEQ person, an industrial hygienist. But it was around this time, that is to say the turn of the century, that people started to get... Uh, even more concerned about dampness and mold growth and oh my goodness what's this toxic black mold that I've got I've got to be so very concerned about it it's it's going to uh, it's going to do nasty things to me and my family and I, I, I learned to turn toward this journal in particular amongst others but indoor air remains one of the I, I still get excited when that journal shows up in my mailbox it, 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 this is this is how much of a geek I am. And there's so much, so much good research that's being published there. And the uh, Carl Bornehag is the, the first listed author on this particular paper. But Dr. Janssen Bell uh, over at uh, the, the uh, uh, DTU, they call it, the, the Danish Technical University, um, has been a friend and colleague and mentor for, for a number of years, uh, specifically when I began my service to ASHRAE's Environmental Health Committee. And anytime I see Carl Barnahog or Jan Sandel's name uh, and, and a host of others, perhaps two dozen others, if I see their name on a paper, I know that's something I need to read and be familiar with. Now, the Nordamp study has got this just absolutely awful, long title to the paper, but let's just call it Nordamp, um, was the first, to my knowledge, that brought together a multidisciplinary team of scary smart PhD types. And we're talking physicians and engineers and hygienists and toxicologists and epidemiologists who did a literature, performed a literature review and tried to piece together what, uh, what was available in terms of the published, re published research literature. And they came up with some correlation and, and we're going to get into a matter of, of terms here, association, cause and effect, uh, uh, correlation. So you, there, are, there are all these terms floating around there, and it gets very confusing. But the bottom line is that in Nordamp, this was the first place that I saw a very rigorously performed uh, critical analysis of the scientific literature that tied together dampness in its various forms and the increase in risk for adverse effects on human airways, that is to say things like cough and wheeze and asthma. And they quantified it um, in a measurement called the odds ratio, which you know, basically uh, 
sums up in, in very simple form how likely it is that you're going to get sick in given con- under given conditions. And the odds ratio in this case was was high. It was it was significant. Folks were perhaps uh, almost twice as likely to suffer these these symptoms if they lived, worked, spent their day, uh, learned as in a school setting, um, in, in a building that was that was damp. And what was also interesting is that it didn't seem to matter how dampness was defined. It could have been condensation on the windows. It could have been visible mold growth. It could have been a musty odor. Uh, it could have been something that was done by a team of trained um, uh, technical specialists to go in and look for these indicators of dampness. It didn't seem to matter if you had any of these indicators. The, the, the chance of you getting sick in that building was going to be uh, greatly increased. So that's what this OR is. I'm looking at a little summary here. OR is the odds ratio, 1.4 to 2.2. That's, you know, I'm not a statistician, never have been good with statistics, but that seems to me to be, you're saying, a statistically significant odds ratio. Yeah, I want to be careful here because, again, I'm I'm not going to, you know, I, I, took, uh, I took stats, uh, at the university, and and I hated it. I think I got the <laughs> lowest reported C in history. In <laughs> so I, honestly, I, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you. So I, I, I want to make sure I don't simplify, uh, oversimplify, or misstate the meaning of an odds ratio. And I've actually got a paper I'm looking at right now that uh, uh, defines odds ratio and compares it to relative risk and this type of thing. But um, but the, the whole point that I want to make is that there was, regardless of how we attach numbers to it, this was the first paper to my knowledge or that came to my attention that said, there's something going on here and it can be demonstrated uh, to be significant through the application of statistics by folks who actually know how to use statistics. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Well, now let's let's get into um, real quick on that particular study. What were the you know what are the uh, practical implications as the result of that study, or, or that that we can I guess uh, garner from that study? Yeah, the, I think the most practical um, way of looking at the Nord Damp study was a very simple statement: avoid dampness in buildings. Avoid dampness in buildings. It, it's as simple as that. But dampness in all its forms makes people sick. Uh, and by that, I mean they experience a greater incidence of things like cough and wheeze, uh, airways infections, tiredness, headache. That's what came out of this paper. But even more interesting and, and consistent through the current day is that we just don't know exactly what these causative agents are. It's not known. It wasn't known here back in 2001. Um, the, uh, the authors, in, in, in fact, uh, say it, it's not known which of these moisture-related agents in the indoor air are responsible for the health effects. And that drives guys like, like you and me and probably a lot of our listeners, it drives us nuts. Yes, sir. We want to know what, what, we want to, you know, what we're going to go out and what are we supposed to measure uh, Mrs. Jones and Mr. Anderson are, are feeling poorly in their office or their classroom. I want to help them. What do I go measure or investigate or look for? And, and we've learned.
learn from the research community that, well, we're, we're just not entirely sure. Is it dust mites? Is it mold? Is it bacteria? Is it the degradation of the building products releasing some form of, um, of a breakdown or breakdown uh, uh, chemical species that might not otherwise be there in elevated concentrations? And the fact is we just we don't know. Even within mold, even within the atypical concentrations or growth or area impacted by fungal growth, we all understand that it, uh, that, that mold in general is recognized to induce an allergy-like response. But there's a lot more going on there. And I, I want to completely uh, set aside, at least for today, any conversation about mycotoxins and so-called toxic black mold. But we know an allergic response is often elicited, but there's more. There's an irritant, an inflammatory response associated with uh, perhaps microbial VOCs or the glucans um, and, and, and other constituents that make up the cell walls of, of the uh, vegetative structures as well as the mold spores. Okay, Cliff? Okay, Wayne, what is the state of science on mold and human health? Hmm. Good morning, Cliff, or a really good afternoon. Oh, I guess. good afternoon. That's good. I think. Well, I, I, think, uh, I think the best way to answer that, and, and again, if, if, if you gentlemen are in a position to share this short, it's a six-page list of references that I simply put together uh, in regard to uh, attempting to understand this question of why do people get sick in damp buildings, um, you, you'll find in this list of references on the second page. What I intended by including this reference uh, was to uh, bring to light what I thought was an outstanding presentation by Dr. Stephen Redd from the uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. This goes back to a statement that he was asked to make by the U.S. House of Representatives back in 2002. So we're moving forward in time from Nordamp in 01 to a statement that Dr. Red made to the U.S. Uh, House uh, back in July of 02. And what's interesting is that I read this with great, when I initially got my hands on it, I was skeptical. I was waiting for, for Stephen Red to kind of hedge his bets or to put spin on what I thought we knew about the association between dampness and mold and, and human health. But he didn't. It was actually very well done. Um, some of the excerpts I've included, uh, I, I think, are spot on and are honest and accurate. And, uh, I mean, who am I to judge the, the uh, chief of the respiratory health branch at the CDC, but here I go. <laughs> okay, go for it. <laughs> it's what I do. <laughs> I love but it. What I found so interesting here was that um, you know Dr. Red told all of our uh, all of our uh, representatives there in in in, uh, in Washington. Look, molds can cause illness. Um, airborne fungal allergens are most often associated with allergic diseases. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, he made reference to the Institute of Medicine's 2000 report, not the 04 report, but the one called Clearing the Air, um, in which uh, the IOM had concluded that there was some kind of an association between exposure to mold and asthma symptoms getting worse. Okay, that's, that's factual. That's spot on. 
But what I thought was interesting as well is he shared with the with the House, the U.S. House, that the CDC had actually been working on a five-year initiative at that point, looking at work-related asthma in offices and schools, and they had found he was being being very forward and, and uh, straightforward, I thought, respiratory disease, uh, there was an association or what he called a significant relationship. Remember I mentioned earlier we've got association, causal effects, we've got, you've got to be careful with these terms because they all mean different things uh, depending on an individual's um, background, where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. Significant relationships between respiratory disease and uh, visual indicators of water and mold damage, respiratory symptoms, and endotoxin, which, of course, is associated with um, gram-negative bacteria. So respiratory symptoms from exposure to a structural component or, excuse me, a, a, a product. Well, it is a structural component of the cell walls of, of gram-negative uh, bacilli in particular, as well as ultrafine particles. And we can go on for another whole show about ultrafine particles. But simple things as well, respiratory symptoms, uh, Dr. Webb indicated there was a significant relationship between respiratory symptoms uh, and uh, indicators of mold in just floor dust and dust that they vacuumed up out of chairs. And then he goes on to say, we just don't know whether mold caused things like pulmonary hemorrhage, memory loss, or lethargy. We, we, we don't know that. And unfortunately, you know what, guys? That's kind of where we still are today. And then the final excerpt that I put into this bit of a a summary of references, again, was was straightforward and without spin. Dr. Red said that linkage between indoor airborne exposures to mold and bleeding from the lung or memory loss had not yet been scientifically substantiated. Now that's, I think that's middle of the road, right? He's not saying, oh, that, that doesn't happen. There's no science to support that. He's not saying, Oh, there seems to be evidence that there's a connection here. He's 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 being factual, and I applauded him at the time. Uh, and due to this day, again, who am I to criticize the head guy? Very smart <laughs> PhD. Well, he's an MD from the CDC, but here I go. Um, you know, he's just saying it's not yet been scientifically substantiated, and and that's about the best we can do. Great. All right, Annie. Let's go to the next one. All right. On the IOM report, can you summarize what was stated and why that was important to include as a key reference with respect to dampness and health? Yeah, hi, Annie. Hi. You know, I think everybody, hi, I think everybody online or listening to this call today or or who will listen to it in the future has heard about the IOM report uh, from 2004. And... I got real excited when I when I heard that this had been published, and I and I bought the book. And um, some of you guys know me well enough that if you pick up a book that Wayne Baker's read, and you flip through the pages, and it's got all sorts of yellow highlighting in it, you can tell he's read the darn thing. Well, this book is virtually solid yellow. It's just it, it it's so interesting. But um, anybody can go read this 370-page hardcover book online for free. You can go to the uh, uh, National Academy's press website, and and you can read this book page by page for for nothing. Uh, You'll go insane doing it, trust me. Or you can spend, I think it was like $44 to buy this book. But what what was significant and truly um, helpful, uh, and yet frustrating at the same time about this particular report, 
is that uh, it all boiled down to a couple of tables that presented summary, a summary of findings. Uh, there's also a, uh, by the way, a 29-page executive summary in, in PDF uh, uh, file format that you can go download for free as well. And it includes these two tables, um, just as I've included them, uh, included them in the uh, list of references that I send you fellows, but, um, the, and, and ladies, sorry, Annie. Uh, but what, what came out of this and... Um, what came out of this, I, I thought, of significance was were, were two things. Um, number one, we have to keep in mind that this group is charged with being the nation's leaders, the nation's scientific and medical resource. They are um, a, a group that are way more educated, way smarter, way more experienced than I'll ever be. And as such, because we, you know, within the medical community, I think we have to remember that there's a vast difference between being able to establish certainty in, in medicine and, and certainty in showing a causal relationship. By that, these folks, and rightfully so, are going to need to be 99.99% certain that exposure to X results in Y. Uh, whereas fellas like me... And, and others, again, I'm sure that are listening, realize that when you're on the stand and you're a subject matter expert or a, you know, serving and providing an expert opinion, you're asked to provide your opinion with a reasonable degree of technical or scientific or engineering certainty. And I will ask you this question, Annie. Do you know what that means? Not ah, see, I'm not supposed to answer. <laughs> well, here's what it means. Here's what it means. You know, you see this all the time in these fancy reports, and it and it says, uh, "This is my opinion with a reasonable degree of scientific certainty." Well, all that means is that you're a little bit more than fifty percent sure. Yeah. Now, let that sink in for just a moment, and compare and contrast where we may spend our lives and and our, our professional hours versus what the MDs and the PhDs and, and the folks are part of the Institute of Medicine, um, the standard that they've got to uh, that they've got to apply. Um, so what we see in the IOM 2004 report is that there's nothing with sufficient evidence to demonstrate a cause and effect or causal relationship. Damp buildings equals I don't know brain hemorrhage. Okay, that that doesn't exist. It's not out there. Not even things that I suppose all of us have noticed when we go out and serve our clients. Um, we've got cough, uh, asthma symptoms, and sensitized persons, people with asthma already, maybe wheeze. We know these things happen to the good folks we go out and try and help in their homes or their schools or their offices. And yet the science hasn't caught up with the experience of those of us on the street. So we see this hierarchy from sufficient evidence of a causal relationship to sufficient evidence of an association. And you have to be careful about knowing what those words mean to these folks from the IOM as opposed to guys like me, as opposed to maybe what Dr. Stephen Redd meant when he used his particular words, as opposed to Carl Bardahog and Jan Sandel when they used a phrase like causal association. Oh, my gosh, my head's starting to hurt. <laughs> I'm trying to follow along, and, and significant relationships too was another one that uh, I believe that yeah. was Doctor Doctor. Yeah, yeah. So we've got quite a few. 
because it's statistically significant, right? Yeah. And, and so we have to be careful about bandying about those various terms. So this Institute of Medicine report, um, this is, by the way, for those that aren't familiar, the National Academy's Committee on Damp Indoor Spaces and Health. And uh, this came out, Damp Indoor Spaces and Health was in 2004. And uh, we will post this paper after, after the show's over today so that uh, people can take a look at those tables. Um, again, as Wayne said, sufficient evidence of a causal relationship, nothing there. Sufficient evidence of an association, we've got that for. Wayne, you want to finish that? Yeah, and what's interesting is that they put together these two tables in the 2004 IOM report, and one table talks about the summary of findings that presents uh, the, the uh, demonstrated association between adverse health effects and exposure to damp indoor environments. And then the second table is the same thing, only it's exposure to the presence of mold or other agents in damp indoor environments. And the tables are virtually the same, with one exception. When you have just a damp building, uh, upper respiratory symptoms, wheeze, cough, asthma, and folks with asthma with existing asthma um, and then the same list under sufficient evidence of an association appears when we're talking about the presence of mold or other agents but there's one addition the possibility of something called hypersensitivity pneumonitis or here in Wisconsin it's commonly called farmer's lung uh, it's, it's, it's uh, uh, HP or hypersensitivity pneumonitis is a, is a broad term and then within HP we have uh, all sorts of, uh, uh, ge perhaps uh, geographically or uh, more correctly, um, a, a descriptor that refers to the context in which this hypersensitivity pneumonitis occurs. And so we have a lot of dairy farmers and farmers in general around here in Wisconsin, as, as, as we do everywhere. But here in Wisconsin, it's commonly called uh, kind of the experience. <laughs> commonly experienced by, hey, hey, watch it now, by, by <laughs> folks who are, in essence, uh, most commonly, for example, is uncapping a silo full of, hell, I'm a city kid, what do I know about uncapping a silo? But let's say it's full of something, corn or silage. I don't even know what silage is, so I don't know what I'm talking about. But they go in there and they uncap this silo, uh, uh, which, which means they I don't even know what it means. They go in there and they stir this stuff up, though, and they get this huge cloud of organic matter, and suddenly they get very sick. They develop this, what, what can be an extremely dangerous uh, condition called hypersensitivity, hypersensitivity pneumonitis. In fact, that reminds me, just ever so briefly, of a case I worked on in north-central Wisconsin where a homeowner developed a case of farmer's lung, or HP, and he wasn't the farmer. He lived in a very damp building. He had an addition put onto the south side of his house. It was built wrong. He lived there for, for a, a few years before we got involved. We found out there were huge quantities of mold and bacteria growing in the, the walls of this addition. And this condition, HP, is so severe. Uh, and I'm using this for, for, for a reason to illustrate how severe and serious this is. This man ended up needing a lung transplant. Whoa. We're not talking about the sniffles or a runny nose here. We're talking about potentially destroying your pulmonary system. Interesting. Interesting. 
All right, Wayne, do you want to, uh, let's see, what time do we have here, guys? We got 12.32 on the uh, official clock. Let's take a break for halftime, and then we'll come back and we'll move on to the next study on the list. Good day well, I heard <laughs> Steve Arzo moving there. Halftime with Dieter. Any questions or comments, yeah. Dieter? Well, yeah, I, 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 I am in agreement with Wayne over there. I mean, I'm, and I'm struggling with this, well, not every day, but certainly frequently in my professional life. And you know I'm, I'm, I'm working with, uh, with indoor mold and so on. And um, I, I, I have no, I think there is more to it than, quote, mold or a specific mold. We are measuring here in Pittsburgh mold like three times a week. I get the results, and for for another reason, I monitor the mold spores in the air in Puerto Rico. Joe knows why, and that 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 doesn't matter. But people on the inside of a building are complaining when I find 300, 400 mold spores per cubic meter of air. And I go outside, and I get 20, 30, 40, 50,000, and the people are happy out there like you will not believe. <laughs> and by the way, if somebody wants to track that, you can look at the NAB uh, results, and I, I just got one today for Pittsburgh, and we are high. So we are over 20,000 um, most per, uh, uh, per cubic meter, and that is, uh, that's, that's the normal variety, the cladosporium and so on. So there got to be more to it than just in, in, in a damp building. Uh, if, if, if we see the diseases that we are seeing, it can't be the mold alone. If we are happy as can be, and I monitored in the last three months in Pittsburgh, we are between 20 and 40,000 mold spores per cubic meter of air outside. And I don't know what they are in my, inside my house, and I really don't give it them because I have the doors open and the window open most of the time. But there got to be more to it, and I think that is the reason why there are so many question marks out there. Is it, is it that cladosporium? Is it that, you know, God forbid, I don't even want to say that uh, uh, word. Uh, is it another mold which is darker in color? <laughs> um, I don't know. I think there is more to it. All right. Absolutely more to it. And um, I, uh, yeah, I, 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 I may want to measure one day, and I do it, and that doesn't take me long, uh, to get a... Um, a a reading in my bedroom in which I spend, you know, eight hours a day at least, or for that matter, my house, it shouldn't be too much different from one place to another, and uh, see whether, you know, what it is in over here, and I don't seem to be affected at all. So I think that's where that big question mark comes from. It is not cladosporium or stachybotrys or any one of the there got to be more to it to a wet building than just that. And of course, well, we know how to measure those, therefore we measure them, and then we get an answer or we, from the results, 
and we don't know what it means. <laughs> I think the problem. Yeah, but the, part, the other part of the problem, Dieter, is even though, you know, that 40000 doesn't bother you, it bothers the heck out of me. I got allergies to that stuff. <laughs> so I guess that's another issue we don't have to deal with. You're one in a million. <laughs> uh, I'm one in a million. I'm a one, I'm one in a million I mean, million you spend cliff. a lot of I know that. You spend a lot of time outside, yep. but you don't really get huge reactions to it or you don't feel a hell of a lot better once you get into your house where the mold spore count may be lower than outside. Okay. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, Dieter, can we bring you back at, uh, at, at the roundup here? Oh, I always have an opinion on something. All right. We'll talk to you then. Before we go back to Wayne, though, let's thank our sponsors here. We're delighted to have as our first association sponsor the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Pro Restore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at prorestoreproducts.com. And, of course, our primary sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry East Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry East is first in drying solutions at dry-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right, let's go back to Wayne Baker. Wayne, um, I just had a quick question on, on the, or maybe a clarification on what Dieter said. Um, you know, obviously outdoors we get these pretty high levels, but uh, we also measure some some very significantly um, higher numbers in the indoor environment at times. Can you talk to us just a, a moment about that? Well, this is one of the one of the aspects of our work that, that drives me nuts. And I realize Dieter isn't isn't making this uh, assumption or what I will ungraciously call a mistake, but some folks only look at total numbers and they say, my goodness, the total mold counts outdoors today are 20,000 uh, whatever you know, fungal structures per cubic meter or CFUs per cubic meter, whatever, and indoors it's a tenth of that. So what are you complaining about? But the way I try and describe it to people uh, that, I, that I work with, clients uh, and, and, uh, and just, just folks in general, is, um, is to think about uh, appearing on one of these game shows where there's a door number one, a door number two, and a door number three, and at the end of the game show, you win. Well, maybe you don't. But here's the point, and you'll have to forgive me. This is a strange analogy, but I think it works. At some point in this game show, you have to pick between door number one, door number two, door number three, and you're going to spend the next week with the people that are behind one of those doors. You're told that every one of those rooms behind each door has 100 people in it. What you're not told is that 
Door number one is get a hundred of your best friends and neighbors and folks you went to school with and a, a, you know, a good group. Behind door number two is a hundred death row inmates. Behind door number three is a mix of elementary school teachers, uh, folks from the American Red Cross, uh, priests, and you know, just nice people. Now, is there a difference? There's a hundred people behind each of those doors, but is there a difference between them? Of course there is. Of course there is. I think so you it's just, not total count. You just answered uh, guest 14's text, so that's good. We killed two birds with one stone there, Wayne. <laughs> well done. Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's the thing. When, 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 and we don't routinely go out and take bioaerosol samples, but we, we suck air with the best of them. And I've had to teach my guys. You know, I've got two graduate microbiologists working for me, and these are, these are sharp guys. Um, but... I've had to teach them, as it were, uh, share the literature with them and say, look, you guys are great with the microscope and you really know your stuff, but when it comes to interpreting the analytical results of bioaerosol sampling, there's about, I don't know, six, seven different ways that we have to look at them. Do we look at the total numbers? Sure we do. But we also look at whether it's death row inmates. And again, I'm not saying that you know, Stachymotris is a death row inmate or Cladosporium is an elementary school teacher. Don't take my analogy uh, too far here. I'm just saying that there's a difference. And we need to look at those differences. And frankly, what the, what the, the, the mold sampling we do, the bioaerosol sampling we do, doesn't, we, we don't infer health effects from those results. What we attempt to do is infer an impact to the building. If we see something strange, something atypical, uh, and again, there's there's at least half a dozen different ways that you have to look at the results if you're going to do your job properly. Um, and we see something that's that's atypical. We 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 can surmise that the building has gotten damp somewhere along the line in its history, and we need to respond to that because we know damp buildings make people sick. All right, Cliff. What about the Euro Expo uh, literature view? Yeah. Uh, the, the the study again that was uh, the, the first listed author is, again is, is Carl Barnahog, and and that goes back to a paper published in the journal Indoor Air in 2004. So again we're moving forward in time, but what one of the uh, deficiencies of the Norddam study and the authors acknowledged it at that time was that um, we know that elevated humidity conditions, dampness in general, especially in homes, increases the level of of dust mites, house dust mites. And oops, back, back in 2001, they kind of sort of forgot to take those into account. Uh, so in 2004, they, they basically updated their multidisciplinary review of the literature, and this time they included exposure to house dust mites. And they came to basically the same conclusions, though. Um, so they, they looked at the literature again, um, and they, they come up with basically the same findings, that dampness in buildings is a risk factor for adverse health effects. But here's the thing that I found uh, compelling and interesting about this paper, because now they're talking about not just people with um, allergies or what we, what we might call atopics, individuals who are genetically predisposed to respond to allergens in a, in a specific way, typically by uh, a process that, that is called IgE-mediated. And again, I'm getting way over my head, so don't ask me, don't you dare ask me any more questions about that. <laughs> but the point being, some of us have inherited from our parents 
this genetic predisposition to develop to develop al- allergies, and those folks are, I guess we can call them atopics. It's a funny name, isn't it? But what your, the Euro Expo study found was that hey, we updated our, our literature review, and damp, and we, we we have concluded that dampness is a risk factor not only for for folks with allergies or that genetic predisposition, but non-atopics, and both in domestic and public environments. Um, they, they go on to say, again, we're not sure. The literature is not conclusive about the causative agents, and this time we did look at mites. Uh, is it microbiological agents? Is it organic chemicals from building materials breaking down? Um, the general conclusion, that again, you'd expect this from researchers. Sorry, Dr. Barnahawk. Sorry, Dr. Sundell. The general conclusion is that we need to do more research. Well, there's a big surprise. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but here's where it gets confusing again, because here's a new term. They're... they're the practical implications or practical uh, practical aspects of what they've published here is that there's good evidence. They they say that there's a there's good evidence for a true association between dampness and buildings and health. Oh my goodness! So there's another one of those terms we have to pick up and examine carefully. What in heaven's name is a true association? It, again, I need I need some aspirin or something. <laughs> uh, well. Let me ask. I, I got a little. I want to make sure uh, I'm I'm hearing this correctly. And then they go on to say, as the causative factors behind this association are not known, the main focus in practical investigations should be finding out and remediating the reasons for the humidity problem. Okay, that's good practical implication. Now, are they saying um, when they took the dust mites into consideration here um, that the presence of the dust mites was not necessarily, uh, or it wasn't necessary, I guess, to have these same types of health effects? Or are they just saying they don't know? It might be the dust mites, it might be the mold, it might be whatever. Well, again, what what they did in in the Euro Expo uh, paper was they took into account the research findings uh, and the, the health effects related to exposure to um, let's say elevated levels of, of house dust mite, and of course it's, it's the dust, the, the, the mite allergen, their their uh, droppings that, that we react to. Um, when, when they took that into account, it explained some, but not all, of the uh, suite, uh, the, the, uh, the palette of adverse health effects that people experienced in damp buildings. So it definitely plays a role exposure to house, house dust mite allergen, um, but it certainly didn't explain all of it. Gotcha. Okay. That's what I needed to hear, Wayne. All right. Let's move on to the next one here. This one, I think, was one that really got a lot of people's attention here. Uh, Madari and Fisk in the public health and economic impact of dampness and mold. Again, in indoor air, can you tell us a little bit about that study and then uh, what you think the significance was? Well, yeah. The, when, when this one hit the uh, hit the newsstand, I I got real excited and, and realized, you know, anytime I see something from Bill Fisk, uh, Bill is, as I imagine a lot of Fisk, uh, a lot of people know, uh, Bill is with uh, Lawrence Berkeley National Labs. He heads up there. I think it's called the Indoor Environments Division or something like that out there. And Dave Modari was head of the EPA's uh, Indoor Environments Division until just a year or two ago. Um, and so these guys got together 
and and what they did was called a meta-analysis. Actually, Fisk did it with someone else, and then he and Dave Madari wrote this particular paper. But they, they, they again, they took the the research literature and they combined it, um, and and they crunched the numbers and, and what's called a meta-analysis, and they came up with these absolutely stunning findings. Oh my goodness! They they used as a health in uh, health endpoint the um, what what they call current asthma. And that's carefully defined in their paper, and I'm not going to try and redefine it here. But, but basically, uh, the individual risk of current asthma uh, to dampness and mold in homes uh, was, was uh, you know, they put all these numbers into a black box and they turn a crank and some, some information comes out. It's, it's amazing. I don't know how they do it. But uh, Madari and Fisk uh, concluded that one out of five cases of current asthma in the United States, one out of five can be attributed to dampness, to, to exposure to dampness and mold um, in, in the buildings in which we inhabit. Well, this, is, this is phenomenal. This is fantastic. And then they went on to crunch some numbers again and come up with what that means in terms of a public health cost. And the numbers are staggering. The annual cost to our nation of asthma, that the, the one in five that, that is based on their analysis is attributed, uh, attributable to dampness and mold exposure, was three and a half billion dollars. Hmm. Now, somebody tell me why we aren't taking one percent of three and a half billion dollars and giving it to certain people, the right people who can research this and figure it out and nail it down once and for all. Doesn't that seem like a smart thing to do? Absolutely. One half billion dollars would be a ton of money, and we could give it to people like Bill Fisk and and, and some of these other researchers. And, and just, let's just figure this out once and for all. But not going to happen. <laughs> all right, Wayne. Let's move on. Cliff, did you want to ask? Well, let's. You know, our, no, I, our, I have more of a follow-up. Okay. Question. Our whole. You know, we we were leading up to the big one now. The the current document out the. World Health Organization document that uh, has been published here just recently. Um, let's first let the listeners know a little bit about that, and uh, then give us some of your thoughts on it, Wayne. Well, one of the uh, one of the re- recurring calls, um, one of the recurring uh, desires expressed by uh, certainly some of the, the medical professionals we work with. Um, has been uh, directed to our national academies and specifically Institute of Medicine to say, you know what, you, you put together this, this report back in 2004, which means, in essence, it was based on, on information and data and studies and research through 2003. It's now 2008, 2009. That's five years. We've learned more. Somebody needs to revisit this, uh, this question of, of dampness mold, indoor spaces, uh, and, and uh, update what the Institute of Medicine did. And all of a sudden, um, I didn't know this was going on, but again, I'm not in charge of the World Health Organization. They don't tell me what they're doing. Uh, and, and there's this wonderful paper that's been issued by the uh, WHO Regional Office for Europe in, in Copenhagen, and it provides guidelines for indoor quality, specifically as relate to dampness and mold. And boy, you know, my heart almost stopped when I'm getting all excited about this one. But, 
<laughs> on, on the one hand, I was as I started reading it, I was kind of disappointed because they followed the uh, they followed the pattern, the uh, presentation method that had been laid out by the IOM those several years ago, uh, and then I sobered up and I realized, well, of course they did. I mean, they're, the World Health Organization is going to follow the best science out there, and they're going to proceed cautiously. They're not going to overstate the science. They're not going to um, try and overrule uh, the, the national academies and, and the brightest, the best and brightest medical minds that, that we have here in the States. So they presented the information in a similar manner. But what I found interesting here is um, incorporated into their you know, Chapter 4 of this paper and if, if folks can get from IQ Radio, from, from you and Cliff and Annie and, and, and others there, a copy of this uh, list of references, there's a rather extended excerpt from Chapter 4. Or you can just go get the whole publication yourself from the, from the uh, World Health Organization website. It's out there for free. You can just get the whole darn thing. But in this particular document, um, they clarify some things, and, and they seem to take it a couple of steps further, maybe not as far as some of us wish they would, uh, because, again, they're talking about uh, insufficient evidence to conclude causal relationships. Uh, there is sufficient evidence to show an association between dampness and these various health effects. Um, and then there's limited or suggestive evidence uh, uh, for, for other health effects that we've all heard of. But... Um, what they do go on to say is, and they clarify some things, and maybe the IOM did it in 04. I, I, I just didn't see it stated quite so plainly there. Um, one of the, the statements they make is that the mechanisms by which microbial exposures, and, and leaving aside uh, infection for a moment, we're not talking about aspergillosis, but the way that these exposures contribute to people feeling poorly remains largely unknown. But it's clear that no single mechanism can explain this palette of effects. Um, so it's not just, uh, you know, mold spores, per se, that are making people sick. There's, there's something else going on here. Um, they also mention that, uh, um, and this is extremely important, uh, what, what we refer to broadly as the inflammatory process. And inflammation is, is, a, is, 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 a, is a human health-related uh, uh, phenomenon that, oddly enough, we don't understand very well. I certainly don't understand it well, but the medical community doesn't understand it well. There was a wonderful paper published in Environmental Health Perspectives a few years ago on inflammation uh, that I can, again, give you the site to folks want to read up on it, but what's important in the WHO report, the World Health Organization report, is that damp buildings um, and, and, and mold in buildings appears to demonstrate this inflammatory response as well as, as, well as a cytotoxic response, a fancy way of saying um, it, it's it, it kills cells, cytotoxic. And, and then even even more interesting, and again, this has shown up in the literature before, but here it's, it's stated, I think, plainly, immunosuppressive responses after exposure to mold spores and their metabolites, components of microbial uh, species, so hypofragments and that type of thing, um, 
this immunosuppressive response I think is extremely important um, and, and we just don't know enough about it, but I think as the research continues and unfolds, we're going to find out that uh, the inflammatory component um, is going to uh, uh, is, is going to be extremely important. And they do discuss it, I, I think, in a, at, at some length um, in the World Health Organization document. As a matter of fact, they go on to say that the that this inflammatory response. Um, includes a, 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 a disease state or a set of symptoms that are um, mediated by or caused by or associated with uh, something called IgE, again, in, in a, a type of immunoglobulin, but uh, by mechanisms other than those mediated by classic allergy-related uh, processes, the Ig, IgE. It goes beyond that. This, this, I think, is extremely important. Um, they also reflect or acknowledge that there is a potential and likely synergism between these microbial uh, agents present in, uh, in damp buildings. And, and, and that's important because uh, a synergistic effect, and, and, and there's, you know, there's, it, there's a good reason that one of the AIHA documents is called the synergist. Synergy or synergism is uh, a synergistic effect is extremely important. It, it's uh, uh, much more uh, not more important, uh, but uh, more profound than the common assumption within the practice of industrial hygiene that exposure <clears throat> exposure to a combination of stressors or contaminants um, results in an additive effect. So if if uh, uh, if a certain chemical or, or a, a stressor uh, results in adverse health effects, that we just assign a number of two, it has two units of harm. Does two units of harm to us? The traditional um, and, and accepted approach is to say we've got two units of harm from A, we've got three units of harm from B, and if you add them together, you have five units of harm. That's the additive uh, aspect. If it's synergistic. Uh, the result can actually be multiplicative, where 2 plus 3 is not 5. 2 plus 3 is suddenly 8. And the classic example there is cigarette smoking and uh, asbestos exposure. You know, you've got maybe 10 units of harm and 20 units of harm, and they don't just add together. They multiply. You end up with 140 units of harm. That's synergism at work. And they talk about synergistic interactions or effects with some elegance and uh, eloquence uh, in, in this report from the World Health Organization. You know, when we oftentimes hear there's, you know, categories of health effects. You've got allergic reactions. You've got the toxic reactions. You've got the um, infection. Uh, are you kind of alluding to the fact, or are they, that inflammation maybe should be a separate category, or is it, and I just don't know that? I'm, I'm not sure I can answer that question without going back and studying that paper uh, in additional depth. But, but you're right. There are, you know, depends on who you ask, there are at least four or five different ways that we acknowledge that uh, fungi, that, that mold exposure in buildings will affect us, and then allergy being one of them, uh, the possibility for infection, as with aspergillosis, aspergillosis is another, uh, uh, toxic effects. 
uh, is, is certainly biologically plausible. Um, then there's the irritant effects, and, and some of those, um, in, in my opinion, are associated with the inherent uh, particle um, uh, properties of mold spores. I mean, we're talking about wee bits and pieces of, of matter that are dust-like. Um, as a matter of fact, the, the technical term for a mold spore is canidia, uh, for certain mold spores, um, uh, fungi imperfecti, uh, is canidia, and that is derived from either the Greek or the Latin for dust. It's these wee bits of dust coming off these, these mold colonies. And dust, as you know, just inherently, it might be inert or benign otherwise, but you get it in your eyes, you inhale it, and it irritates your, your nasal passages, and it makes you sneeze and cough. Um, so there's that. And then there's also the irritant response associated, possibly, with stimulation of something called the trigeminal nerve, uh, which goes back to, as I understand it, goes back to our uh, uh, caveman days and in, can induce a flight or fight type of response. It, it seems to have developed over the eons genetically as a way of protecting us from really, really, really bad stuff uh, that somehow um, through natural selection or other processes uh, was uh, we were endowed with this direct connection between this nerve in our, uh, in our sinuses or in our nasal passages, this direct connection to the brain uh, that causes uh, a pretty severe and, and profound response. Um, in cases where that nerve is stimulated. All right. Well, let's go to the roundup, gang. We've got, uh, we're going to go a little over, Wayne. Can you hang in there with us for 10 minutes? Oh, sure. All right. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw hide. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, going to go around the horn. Let's start with uh, Dr. Dieter. Do we have you back on the line? Yes, I guess I'm unmuted here, You're right? You're unmuted, Dieter. Any questions or well, comments? Absolutely. Well, I, I, I didn't say that the numbers are completely useless. In fact, I think the numbers are very important if you know how to interpret them. Yep. That is one of the things. The other thing, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more with him. And uh, the University of Pittsburgh just got $60 million worth of stimulus money for research. And I make you a small wager of a beer or two that not one penny will go to mold research or something like that, even though we have a graduate school of public health and they are, quote, interested in all of that. Uh, Mold is just not sexy enough. We like to study breast cancer and colon cancer and lung cancer and uh, pancreatic pan uh, cancer and brain cancer and all of that. Who the hell gives a damn about uh, a mold? And I'm the first one to admit that the number by itself doesn't. Yeah, it's, it's not all of it. It depends on what it is. And we know everybody has heard of penicillin, not everybody, but most people in the world have heard of penicillin, uh, which is obviously made by a mold. Most people don't know what cyclosporin is, 
which is another mycotoxin produced by mold, and it is a powerful, powerful, powerful chemical. It's unbelievably powerful, and you know it, and Joe heard that before. Uh, it's, it's used to knock down your immune system after yeah. a transplant. Yep, yep. Uh, so, you know, get me right over there. Uh, uh, you know, like I said, I didn't say that this is the only thing, and I don't want it, and I don't use it, or any of that. But I really think we ought to, uh, instead of wasting it in Afghanistan, I think a couple of million dollars would help us to get a couple of answers to, quote, the implication of mold exposures. And these damp buildings, too, Dieter. That's a lot of money we're spending, uh, $3.5 billion, huh? That's, that, that's fine with me, yeah. Yep. All right. And I think, um, you know, also the World Health Organization report, uh, and Wayne summarized it well, uh, you know, basically confirms. I will read it, and I have nothing better to do. (laughs) Well, it it confirms that, you know, it's probably a a number of things, just like you were stating earlier, that is leading to these problems. And it's not not the one thing. That is guaranteed. There is something else and I would like to know what it is. We all would. All right. Let's see if, uh, Cliff, do you have a final question here? Well, I think before I, I did my final question, we just have so many great comments that are on the board. Perhaps we should uh, capture those for, for posper- uh, posterity there. Uh, you know, one of the, the listeners says that he believes that elevated indoor moisture, in addition to the obvious, also serves as a transport mechanism for a huge stew of chemicals and particles. And pretty interesting uh, theory. Um, let's see what else do we got here. Um, chemical reactions uh, is the result of oxidizers such as ozone that, that are in the air can form aldehydes and other significant irritants. Uh, someone says just stop the moisture. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, it's uh, it's pretty good. Um, that dust mites and mold uh, like the same type of environment. Um, so we've had quite a few good comments. We absolutely. appreciate those. Keep them coming in. Cliff, okay. I know you had one absolutely, absolutely. in particular you wanted to get to today. Yeah. Um, Wayne, do you think the impact of bacteria is underrated because we can't easily see them? Uh, you know, would you agree that bacteria would be the first microorganisms to amplify and proliferate following water damage and that, you know, what mold often gets to eat are the leftovers, and uh, we seem to just concentrate more on the fungi. Any comment? Yeah, that's a great question, Cliff. And and the answer is it depends. Now, the, uh, I, I'm not sure that in all cases that uh, some type of bacterium is, is, gonna, is going to, uh, you know, initiate the party. It's going to depend on uh, what the level of moisture is, it's going to depend on the micronutrients available. Uh, there are a lot of factors that maybe I don't understand as well as I might, but I do remember looking into this question, of are, are we sampling for the relevant uh, uh, types of uh, not only organisms, but, uh, but other contaminants in damp environments? And I found a wonderful paper, I don't have it in front of me right now, but I remember the authors looked specifically at three different um, types of, of, of bacteria, and they compared the inflammatory potential and the cytotoxic potential uh, using human 
I think they were uh, pulmonary epithelial cells. In, in any event, what they found was that simple, common bacteria um, in terms of the cytotoxic potential, if memory serves, and I'd have to pull up the paper to remember for sure, but it made Stachybotrys look like a joke. Hmm. Um, and in terms of the inflammatory potential, I, I, I'd have to, it's in a presentation, uh, a summary of this is in a presentation that I put together a number of years ago, I just don't have it in front of me. But the bottom line, Cliff, is that you're absolutely right. We can't ignore the growth of bacteria, especially uh, in conditions where there is standing water, uh, quiescent pools, still you know, pools of, 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 of water, because the bacteria are going to outcompete for available nutrients in cases of you know, a puddle or a condensate pan. And an air handling unit is a, is a perfect example. It's full of water all the time. And if you go in there and sample, or, or a cooling coil, you go in there and, and, and sample the stuff that's in the condensate pan or dripping off the downstream face of the coil, you, you may not find a lot of mold, but you could find huge quantities. As a matter of fact, a number of a project they did years and years ago for this highfalutin uh, architectural engineering firm up in the Twin Cities, and I opened up one of the big air handlers, um, and, and I, I, you know, I shut the thing down, and I opened up all the doors. This was a good-sized unit, I don't know, 30,000, 40,000 CFM unit. And I walked over and I looked at the, the downstream. I could see the downstream face of the, of the uh, cooling coil, and I thought, oh, what is this? This is disgusting. <laughs> and I looked in the condensate pan, and there was this gelatinous mass. It looked like something that Bill Cosby would peddle on TV. You know what I mean? The Jello guy. Yeah. It was it was a combination between between orange Jello and chocolate pudding, and I scooped some of it up with a sterile spoon and put it into a four-ounce specimen container and sent it off to the lab, and they called me up and said, oh, my God, where did... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it, was pure... <laughs> it, was, it was pure gram-negative bacilli. It was the stuff... It looked like the stuff that life originally spawned from about four and a half billion years ago or whatever the number is. Wow. Like I get hit by lightning, and then people started walking. This stuff was disgusting. And it wasn't mold at all. It was pure biofilm, this huge bio community dominated by a variety of, of types of bacteria. Absolutely. Could that make people sick? Well, as long as it stayed underwater, it wasn't going to be aerosolizing and, and affect people downstream. But what happens when you get into uh, you know, late summer, early fall, and we go between cooling and heating, and the cooling coil and the condensate pan alternately dry out and then get wet again? dry out and the stuff starts uh, starts releasing and getting into the airstream. And the reason I'd gotten this call was that the head of their mechanical engineering department could not work in the building. He had to work from home because he got so sick when he was there. And I'm not saying I found the smoking gun in this case. As a matter of fact, they had a host of additional challenges, opportunities, what shall we call them. <laughs> but this one sure seemed like a, you know, a, a slam dunk certainty that this stuff could have been making people sick. Wow. Annie, we got one more from Annie, then I've got one, and we're going to have to wrap it up. All right, Wayne. Would you agree that a good number of damp buildings have insect and rodent infestations and that these combined effects of rodents and insects and microorganisms, microorganisms hasn't been sufficiently studied? Yeah. You know what? That, that's such a nice 
uh, segue into or reminder of some training I went through last week for the uh, through the National Center for Healthy Housing really opened my eyes um, because um, their their concentration is on homes and there is uh, there there is a, a wonderful two-day presentation and learning experience for uh, for folks like you and I but for public health officials or, or public health officers as well where they stress seven fundamental principles of keeping a home healthy and one of those was uh, you know revolved around or is addressed by integrated pest management which of course attempts to address in non-chemical uh, ways the infestations of, of insects and mice and rats and the like and absolutely the the uh, they do go hand in hand. Um, I was in a building over the weekend um, down in our state capital here in Madison where uh, we, a contractor had stripped the drywall off the inside of the wall. And um, matter of fact, Cassidy had been out there a couple of weeks earlier and found this huge colony of ants. Well, these were carpenter ants that appeared. And when we stripped the drywall off, we found the, where they had been munching on the two-by-sixes and they wouldn't be there. They're not going to go after the wood unless it's damp. And sure enough, all around it, the wood had rotted out, and there was this this colony of carpenter ants in there just having a good old time. So they do go hand in hand. And whether it's insect frass, as the polite way of saying it, uh, uh, cockroaches, uh, ants, uh, oh, I'm not an entomologist, so I, I don't understand completely what the impact of insect infestation in homes would be, but I can't believe it's, it's anything good. Wayne, one more. I got a text question in here. Uh, professional building evaluators are typically hired by the financial stakeholder of the potential moldy building. What, uh, what ethical obligation does Wayne think the building evaluator owes to the building occupants to inform them that they are potentially occupying a hazardous environment? particularly if the occupant is experiencing symptoms that the mold evaluator is aware may be caused by mold. Ooh, tough one, Wayne. I want to know which attorney asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let, let's just say it's an advocate. Yeah, an yeah I think we're advocates here. <laughs> We've got an advocate. Yeah, I'm just kidding. That's a great question and a hard one. And so, so what... Uh, what responsibility do we have? You know, if you read through the Code of Ethics for folks that are um, certified through the ABIH, it says something very much like that, that ultimately our, and, and as it should be for, for I, I don't care if you're ABIH or ACAP, you know, whom you uh, uh, trust your certification process to, but, um, you know, we do have a responsibility as professionals in this line of work to the public. Ultimately, that's who we must serve. But we also have a fiduciary responsibility. If a client's paying me to go in and look at this building, um, unless I see something that's got my hair on fire, and it wouldn't be a very big fire, nor would it burn very long at this point, but you know what I'm saying, finding something that's just god-awful, yeah, I'm going to go downstairs and I'm going to tell these people, look, you got to get out of here right now. The building's filling up with carbon monoxide or, or there's a natural gas leak. But otherwise, um, we we typically as professionals in this line of work we go through our client and we have to we have to or they'll never hire us again or they won't pay us but we we are i think and this is just my professional or perhaps it's even my personal opinion we must protect the public if i go into a building and i see a situation that 
leads me to believe that I would not send my wife or my children into that building for fear of their health. I will stress that as necessary with my client to ensure that they take appropriate actions. And if they don't take appropriate actions, then I don't know what I'll do. And, and, and it's going to, the answer is I have to handle that on a case by case basis. Maybe I go over the client's head. Maybe I call public health, local public health officials. Maybe I call the local newspaper or the television station anonymously. I don't know, but I can't not take further action if my client doesn't respond appropriately to situations that I am certain are making people ill. Well said, Wayne. Well said. Is there anything you'd like to add before we go? Well, keep up the good fight, I guess. And, and keep an eye on the literature. You know, um, if, if there's a way that we can get, again, as, as Dieter pointed out, as I mentioned, if there's a way that we can somehow give uh, the, the, the researchers, the, the folks who are capable of figuring these things out, the, the resources they need to start chipping away at the vast um, uh, the, the, the mass, the, the, the enormous mass of, of things that we don't know. If we can just chip away at it, it could make a huge difference, and I'd sure like to see that happen. All right. I can't think of a better way to sign off, Wayne. We want to thank this week's guest, uh, Wayne A. Baker from Michael's Engineering, for stopping by again this week and uh, really updating us on some very current literature. Thanks for joining us, Wayne. Next week, uh, the Z-Man and I will be back. I, I think the Z-Man's in. We're, uh, we're still working on finalizing our guest arrangements for next week. Uh, we've got quite a lineup coming up over the next few uh, weeks, though. Um, we've got, uh, yeah, Wayne mentioned the National Center for Healthy Housing, and uh, we've got a few others coming up that I think our listeners will find fascinating, uh, just like today's show. And we had some great comments. We appreciate the comments about... Uh, Love the more scientific presentation from Wayne, etc. cetera. Uh, a lot of good discussion on the chat room. So before we go, I want to make sure I thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff oh, Slotnick. It's a pleasure. All right. And, of course, the lovely environmental Annie Koalecki. Thank uh, you, Joe. And the wingman at the controls. Uh, most important, oh, of course, Dr. Dieter. Can't forget our technical director, Dr. Dieter. But most importantly, thanks to all of you, our uh, growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 